1: This is The Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Friday, September 28th. I'm Sophie Casas. We recorded today's episode in the midst of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and Judge Kavanaugh's testimonies while the hearings were still ongoing. In this episode, Broadly Editor-in-Chief Lindsey Shrub, Broadly staff writer Marie Solis, and Vice Executive Editor Dori Carr-Harris discuss their strategies for covering this historic event in the media, given the difficult and sensitive nature of the subject matter, the fast pace of the news cycle, and the consequences of the hearing's outcome that go beyond just
2: who will be our next Supreme Court justice. So this has been a grueling day. We are still in the midst of Judge Brett Kavanaugh's testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee about the allegations brought forward by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and others about alleged sexual assault. And it has been an exhausting day. I can only imagine how the, you know, two people testifying in front of this committee must feel. But for those of us covering it and just following along, I think it's been hard to know how to process all this information to even maintain concentration to make sure that we're capturing all of it. And so I think for today's podcast, we wanted to talk about what decisions have sort of gone into our editorial process here in the newsroom, which is certainly a little bit more meta than I think we usually get on the Vice Guide to right now. But because the speed of this news cycle has been incredibly intense, because emotions are running very high, and because I think we can all agree that the societal impact of the outcome of this hearing does go beyond who will be the next Supreme Court justice to how we are approaching the Me Too movement about whether or not we believe women about how far we've come since the hearing of Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. So I wanted to talk to you two today about what kind of decisions or criteria you guys are weighing when deciding what stories to pursue in this news cycle or, or what angles to take. And I think that before we dive into that, it's important to say that, you know, for Broadly um, and for Vice Digital, I think we're looking to think about how we can interpret the news cycle. And rather than necessarily just doing breaking news hits, we're trying to get behind the story, provide a little bit of analysis, do that kind of second day follow story, or in this case, three or four hour follow story to be able to provide some additional insight behind just a straight headline of this is what happened. Lindsay, maybe we'll start with you. As the editor-in-chief of Broadly, you know, a site that is looking at identity and experience and covers a lot of difficult issues such as sexual assault, abuse, harassment, what are some of the things that you've been thinking about when deciding what angles to pursue here? And how have you been trying to sort of be responsible in a news cycle that is so rapid fire?
3: Well, for one, it's certainly difficult. And I think the first thing that you mentioned, which is that, you know, it's really it's taking a toll on a lot of people. And I think that for us is broadly one of the things that we decided to do in our coverage was to kind of take a step back, at least for today, and to kind of just put forward out there that this news cycle itself can affect those people who are reporting on it, who are watching it, who are writing about it, who are editing it and publishing it every day. Um, so for that, like that was just a bit more of trying to let our readers know that we're there in it too and that this news cycle, that everything that we're hearing, it doesn't just stay on our screens, that it has a real impact um, and that we feel it on one side of the news and we know that our readers might feel it on the other. So I think doing things like that kind of help us also take a moment to have a bit of perspective on the impact that these stories can have. I also think that in the past year or so, we really have come a long way. Um, not us as broadly or even as vice, but just the media in general in taking more responsibility about how we talk about certain issues, particularly mental health um, and suicide. But with sort of the rise of the Me Too movement, I'd argue that there hasn't been as much attention to how do we responsibly talk about sexual assault? How do we acknowledge how triggering these stories can be and these experiences can be? I also think that no matter what room you're in, whether it's a newsroom or a judiciary hearing room, it's important to recognize that there are always survivors in the room. And yet, even though we've come this far, it's really rare still that you're hearing from survivors themselves to actually speak to these experiences and be the center of these stories So at Broadly, we've really tried to make that our effort in talking to survivors, in talking to even other high schoolers about what they think about consent, um, since that is actually the majority of the time when or the most likely time you are to experience sexual assault also, to give a lot more perspective on how these experiences impact so many.
2: And when you were talking to 17-year-olds or high school students, what were some of the things that they shared with you about the conversations they're having around consent or, or not having that you felt were really pertinent to the discussions that we've been hearing today.
3: Sure. So to, and to add more context to that as well, um, we chose to speak with high schoolers because the alleged assault um, that took place with Brett Kavanaugh happened in high school um, when he was supposedly 17. So it was important for us to talk with high schoolers to understand like what they think about consent and all these discussions that were happening in the media around boys will be boys and can you really take responsibility and what does this mean? And we found, and I'll let Marie speak to this as well, but we found that high schoolers really did have a good grasp on consent and about taking responsibility. Um, and one, I'm just to paraphrase, one person spoke about how survivors often don't come forward because it feels like it's never a good time when it's 30 years later, people ask you, why did you take so long to report? But when you're in high school, people tell you don't report because you could ruin somebody else's life and take away their future. So it was actually, I think, really insightful to have that sort of perspective, kind of both being able, these kids that were both being able to look forward and also look back.
0: Yeah, so I think that part of why we decided to talk to the 17-year-olds, aside from this obvious connection, the connection being, as Lindsay said, that Brett Kavanaugh himself was 17 when this alleged assault happened, is because at Broadly, we really wanna think about how these really high-level conversations that are happening in, in the upper echelons of our government, in the highest national platform, Are trickling down to everyday young people specifically. And, you know, we're curious about how they're internalizing it, what they're thinking when they see these media headlines, which, as we've alluded to, are not always sensitive to survivors of sexual assault and these women who are coming forward and telling their stories. And it was really revealing to talk to them. Also, something that was interesting to me and surprising is that you know in our desperate hopes that the next generation is is going to be so much more informed and sensitive than we are there were also some responses that we got and I felt were important to include uh where some teens you know said some things that we've heard for a long time such as you know these allegations shouldn't overshadow Brett Kavanaugh's accomplishments. He shouldn't have to pay for something that he allegedly did uh, more than three decades ago. And so, I think it's important to recognize the the different contours of these conversations, and that no one group is is monolithic. And I think that that's something that the media will have to to reckon with in the way that some of these attitudes are continuing to get passed down. That said, I've written like a couple dozen stories about Brett Kavanaugh, starting from the point where, you know, we were just talking about his anti-choice record as a judge and, you know, ending, leading up to today with talking about these allegations against him. Um, And reporting that story, talking to those 17-year-olds was probably the bright spot for me, uh, in this whole news cycle, because there really were some some heartening things that came of those conversations, and we don't hear the voices of seventeen year olds that often.
2: I think what's interesting about talking to high schoolers today is that we've been having a lot of conversations about how much we have evolved since the alleged incident between uh, Dr. Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, how times have changed and how whether or not he should be held accountable for alleged behavior at that time, given that we've evolved as a society or that things are different now or that that took place in a different time when social and cultural mores were different. When you were talking about those issues with high school students, did you feel that that much had changed? Did you feel that it was, you know, sort of impossible to make those connections between now and then? And what did they think? I think
0: something that I heard from them that I think has been consistent for teens across decades, um, and I can relate to this feeling as well, is their sense that being 17 is being, is basically being an adult. They expressed a real sense of just incredulity at the idea that they wouldn't be held accountable for anything that they did at 17. And you know, I remember being 17 and thinking that no one could tell me anything, that I was fully grown, I was in charge of my own life and my own decisions, and therefore could be held responsible at any point for for whatever choices I made. And even the teens who I spoke to who said that the allegations against Kavanaugh shouldn't overshadow his accomplishments still somehow said, you know, what you do at 17 matters and, you know, you will face consequences. And so I think that that's something that when we're talking about, like, how different things were in the 1980s versus now, teenagers have always felt... I think when you get to 17, especially you can drive, um, you can go places by yourself and and make a lot of decisions by yourself. And I think that they feel a real ownership of, of their actions and their choices, and therefore they felt that Kavanaugh should have felt, should now feel that same way. And so part of reckoning with sexual assault means, looking back on on our past actions and thinking about them and reconsolidating them through the lens of what we know now and and what we recognize as sexual violence now.
3: Um I think also to that point, um, which is when we're having these conversations about this sort of thing, it just wasn't how it was done in the 80s, or we didn't consider this to be harassment or abuse back then, when we're looking back and having that reflective lens, I think it's pretty rare for us to actually look at that and take that to the side of the survivor or the accuser and think about How during those times, it was also much less likely for somebody to report assault because of the culture and the context at the time, whether you wouldn't be believed or you didn't see it as assault or you had nowhere to go or didn't think that it would go anywhere from there. So I think it's important. And I think right now you're really seeing that backlash of people saying this is why I didn't report. And broadly, that's why we've been trying to tell those sort of stories as well.
2: What are the sort of fundamental values that Broadly has that they bring to stories of sexual assault, abuse, harassment, or anything that sort of falls under that sexual violence umbrella?
3: Sure. So I think that a lot of what we do, which is sad, but is kind of in spite of and because of what we've seen and how we've seen these stories covered elsewhere, I think that we take a very intentional approach with which stories we think need a platform and which stories deserve to be told. And with that, of course, we come with like honesty and we interrogate stories and make sure that we are telling the truth. But also we try to do this with real empathy, um, with compassion um, and with seeing people as humans and treating them as such.
2: And do you feel that that, has been lacking in the news cycle that we've been undergoing recently uh, around Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford?
3: Yes, absolutely. It's hard because there's so much of it that even like as an editor or someone who's follow- following the news, there's so much that you do sort of try to stay away from just so that you can be focusing on what is the most important things that I should be actually reading and listening to. But at the same time, yes, I think the ways in which stories are framing, for one case, other allegations of assault and how all of these different allegations will be either grouped together or reported on individually without all the facts or without all the context um, or using one allegation to try to discredit another. um, I think we've been seeing that very acutely. And then also, even in terms of how we frame headlines themselves and how we refer to Dr. Ford as the accuser, and how we think of uh, Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh as not the accused. And so I think that there are the the macro and the micro level choices that go into all of these types of stories.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting, and I think it's it's difficult sometimes to not fall into the same thought patterns or just sort of reporting patterns of the news cycle, given that it's 24 hours and it's constantly evolving and there is an expectation from our audience or from the world that there will be now a constant flow of news and new headlines to consume. And the second something happens, there needs to be an article written about it. I think one conversation that I was having with another writer on Vice dot com, Eve Pizer, about a story that she ended up writing. But in our conversation about how to frame that story, I think there had been a lot of discussion about how survivors were getting through this, what their strategies were, and I agree it's an it's a really important conversation to have. But you know, her POV was that she wanted to talk about how men were enduring this cycle and take the onus off women for a moment to point the lens back at men and talk about how the extreme emotional response that was coming from certain men um, who were defending and who are defending Judge Kavanaugh was coming from a place of fear. Um, and I think that's an, an interesting thread to talk about, too, about how, as we were saying, you know, the the impact of this decision which has not yet been handed down as to whether or not the committee will confirm Judge Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice, has further impact other than you know what he will potentially be able to implement. It does go back to whether we think how, how seriously we take these allegations, whether they are things that could derail the career of a successful man. And I think I'm interested to hear from you, both of you, how you guys have been dealing with reporting out that thread with how men factor into this conversation and how you want to approach giving your platform over to discussions of the reactions of men and the potential impact on them and and what kind of goes into that process.
3: I would say first, too, I think it's really interesting because in especially when the news cycle is so rapid fire like this, it's easy to slip into lines of thought that are very binary. And that group people together, that women are always the survivors, which is not the case, or that like Republicans are on one side and liberals are on the other. And like that side is divided by who believes these allegations and who doesn't or who they think deserves to speak. But for us, I do think that it's been important to not assume sweeping like assumptions about how all survivors feel or how all women feel but to instead recognize that even if this conversation or the, this moment is supposed to be about sexual assault it's actually really rarely the survivors who are leading that conversation unfortunately just because of how the power structures are situated right now in terms of like who is actually on the judiciary hearing committee which is 11 men or like who are the republicans in congress that are overseeing all of this and who are the publishers of all of these major platforms like feeding the media that we're reading so i think it's important for us to continue to look at men and bring them into that conversation, but also to not make assumptions that they aren't part of, for one, like that they themselves aren't survivors or directly impacted by this, but also to make sure that we are prioritizing those that have something to say that are directly connected to this experience and that haven't had a voice for so long.
2: Yeah, I think we've been talking a lot about gray areas. And as you're saying, not falling into sweeping generalizations and being very responsible in how we discuss outcomes and emotions and feelings and thoughts. Since there is such a deep desire for takeaways, and I think for a deep desire for an understanding of how to think or feel about certain events, how have you guys been approaching, you know, not giving into that or continuing to be responsible while trying to give people information and insight into what a lot of these events mean?
0: I definitely try to resist uh, the hot take. <laughs> I hope um, media in general is starting to move a little further away from the hot take, um, though obviously there is always a pressure to make bold statements and sweeping generalizations to drive traffic to your site. But, you know, Lindsay and I were talking just before we sat down with you uh, about what we want to say tomorrow, um, whether or not there's a vote on Brett Kavanaugh tomorrow. Like, regardless of that, you know, how are, how did we digest today? And are we ready to say anything definitive? And so that's something that that we've been thinking a lot about. And the story I'm going home tonight to write is more reflective and will explore what today meant to people who are watching uh, rather than, you know, making a definitive statement about what our takeaway should be because I think we all know that this is a really historic moment we're living through and it's really difficult with zero hindsight Um, and a little, and can be a little irresponsible to say something, you know, super contrarian, for example, about what it all means. And especially having these hearings kind of close the first year of the Me Too movement, there's a lot to think about. And I think our approach at Broadly and, and my approach as a politics writer is about making sure I'm just bringing the right voices into the fray, as Lindsay and I have, you know, been really hammering down during this conversation and letting those voices uh, speak
2: more loudly than, than my own. And in terms of what some of your initial reflections or impressions of the testimony given today by Dr. Ford and Judge Kavanaugh, were there things that surprised you? How did that make you feel watching that? Yeah, so I'm
0: I'm still kind of trying to to digest everything that I watched today, but I think something that was really striking and I think is something that people will continue to talk about in the coming days and weeks and, you know, maybe a couple decades from now this is what we'll be talking about, but just Ford's poise giving her testimony and the really stark contrast between her disposition during that testimony and Kavanaugh's, uh, who came across as remarkably angry. Uh, He interrupted many of the senators and tried to turn the questioning back on them. And I think it, it really spoke to, for me, Well, first of all, kind of what we expect of alleged victims of sexual assault and how we expect to hear their stories. And I think we all went into today knowing that if Ford came across as too angry, if she cried too much, if she couldn't remember enough or couldn't answer the outside counsel's questions to her satisfaction, that that would be hung around her neck. And we really, well, people who are supporters of the Me Too movement pins their hopes on Ford, as unfair as that can be to her, uh, that she has to carry that that weight for for all s- survivors. But yeah, I, I think we also saw encapsulated in Brett Kavanaugh a lot of big themes of men's rage. Uh, I saw a lot of people talking about white men's rage specifically. And just in the things that he had to talk about in order to testify, you know, he was talking about prep school parties and this, you know, really just rowdy group of boys that he was a part of. And in in talking about that really laid bare all of the systems that we have to talk about when we're talking about sexual assault. And I think that's the contrast between their two testimonies is really what's going to stay with people.
2: Mm. What about you, Lindsay? Anything that was notable today or that, that really stuck out to you?
3: I do think that Marie did really capture it in that sense of poise and also just how much we were sort of holding onto this one woman's strength um, and how much we all had, it felt like, pegged to her. I felt like maybe this was just me I don't know but I felt like I was seeing my mom like testify you know and then I realized like she is someone's mom and like that's who she is she is a private citizen doing this to like really actually change history and that was such a massive moment and it also felt so fragile and tenuous as you said too but also within that like, f- there was that feeling which I felt I felt like only a few times in the last few years of this feeling of like knowing that so many other people around the nation were rocked in the same way that I was in that moment. and knowing that, like the tears or that these feelings of anguish, that I knew that there were certain moments where, like I could feel so many other people feeling the same way. And yet, at the same time, making the huge mistake of going onto to Twitter and then realizing, just how, like, polar opposite so many people can feel. And that was a real stark contrast and reminder for me that there's there's such a long way for us to go and that it really is, like, not a triumph, but just at the beginning of a much bigger battle. Um, so that was actually a pretty sobering moment for me.
2: It's hard to know whether the outcome of the vote tomorrow or if the vote is tomorrow, the outcome of the final vote will speak to whether or not we're making progress. But I do think that it's clear that as a society, we're still at a bit of a loss as to how to proceed.
1: That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.